And uh, in our reading this morning, uh, he's arrived at Jerusalem. Uh, Several chapters back, we heard that he set his face towards Jerusalem and uh, all of the the crowds who were following him knew that and they, uh, they had their expectations of what Jesus would do when he arrived at Jerusalem. And so those those crowds who were waving palm branches and cheering and calling out, uh, they, they were the crowds who had followed Jesus all the way to Jerusalem. Uh, it worked for them because they were coming to Jerusalem anyway for the Passover, uh, but these, these were the crowds entering Jerusalem with Jesus, uh, welcoming, him, welcoming him in. So Jesus has arrived at Jerusalem and in our reading uh, it covers three days and these three days that Jesus uh, spends uh, before the Passover are actually very uh, carefully thought out. Jesus knows what he's going to do each day. On day one he enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey and this is in fulfilment of the prophecy made by Zechariah. Zechariah said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. People knew this prophecy and they were waiting for it and when Jesus gets on this donkey and rides into Jerusalem, that's what they are thinking. Here here he is, here is our king. And so they call out, Hosanna to the son of David, to the king. They're expecting great things because the prophecy says he will come to Jerusalem and he will bring peace. Peace from the sea to the sea, from the Mediterranean through to the Dead Sea and then from the river, from the River Jordan to the ends of the earth. But Jesus disappoints them. He arrives there um, and as he promised, the donkey was sent back to Bethany But he comes in, he goes into the temple and he just looks around and then he leaves. Bit of an anticlimax. During these three days, Jesus isn't staying in Jerusalem. He's in Bethany, which is a town nearby, roughly about the same distance of Norwood from the Adelaide CBD. And uh, the, we'll see this later, the the Dead Sea um, from Bethany was roughly about the same distance as the sea is here from, from Adelaide. So he, he just walks in, he looks around and then he leaves and most likely the people thinking thought he was going to do something spectacular and amazing. I thought he was going to march up to the house of Pilate, the Roman governor, or to the Roman guard and with some miraculous sign, drive them out so that he can be installed as king in Jerusalem, but he doesn't. 
on day two, things aren't so happy for the people. On the way into Jerusalem, we might be, if we didn't know who Jesus was, we might be um, excused for thinking he was in a bit of a bad mood that morning. He is feeling hungry and he curses a fig tree for not having any fruit. Wasn't the fig tree's fault, wasn't even the season for figs, but he's about to teach his disciples something important. Then he comes into the city and instead of going up to the Romans and driving them out, he comes into the temple and he drives out the buyers and the sellers. He accuses them of turning the temple a house of prayer into a den of robbers. This wasn't a spontaneous bit of anger. Remember, he was there the day before. He was looking around. He was seeing what was happening. He was in his mind. He was knowing what he must do the following day. John's Gospel tells us that he actually made a whip of cords himself and that was a whip that he used to drive the people and the animals out of the temple. So this is a carefully planned action and it's also in fulfilment of scripture. We're going to be hearing a few Old Testament scriptures this morning because all that Jesus did was so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jeremiah said, Behold, You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, the temple, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. The the issue, I think, wasn't that primarily that people were buying and selling because they were selling animals for sacrifice. They were exchanging money so that people could pay the temple tax and buy the sacrifices in the right kind of currency. The issue was that people were coming into the temple flippantly, thinking we can, we can go on doing whatever we want, uh, these sins, we can be involved in idolatry and we can just rock up to the temple and say, oh God, God will forgive. That's his job. And be flippant about uh, the seriousness of their sin. And then Malachi said, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver 
and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. When we say that Jesus fulfills scripture, we often mean that uh, things happened under the sovereign hand of the Father uh, miraculously, in, in a way that you say, well, no one could have engineered that. Uh, it's so clearly a fulfilment of what the prophet said. And uh, we can point to that to say, well, here you go. What, what God said uh, centuries before, he has brought to pass. But we also see often Jesus invoking scripture. Jesus deliberately doing something or saying something uh, in order to bring to people's minds what the scripture says. In order that the truth of the scripture might be brought to bear on those people. So uh, the word of the Lord to the people in the Old Testament, when the prophet spoke that prophecy, that the message he wanted them to hear, Jesus is saying it's the same message to you now as I've come to fulfil this scripture. And this is what Jesus is doing, as I said, very carefully doing and saying things in Jerusalem that will bring to mind all that the scripture has said and to make the people realise, yes, your king has come, but your king is coming and he's actually bringing judgement, not necessarily the, uh, the thing that you were looking for, uh, this spectacular throwing out of the Romans. But it is through this judgement that he brings that there will be a refining, there will be a restoration. The peace will come, but the peace will come through judgement. Day three. As they approach Jerusalem again, Peter sees the fig tree and it's withered from its roots. And the following conversation is the lesson to be learnt, really not just about the fig tree, but what the fig tree represents, which is everything that Jesus is doing in Jerusalem over these three days and everything that he will go on to do. Now, unfortunately, this passage... um, Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have it and it will be yours, uh, has been misunderstood and misapplied, uh, taken to be just a lesson about prayer in general. So decide what you want and ask for it and if you believe strong enough that you have it, then somehow you'll twist God's arm and he will answer your prayer and give you what you want. Now, obviously, Jesus is teaching a principle here about prayer. When we approach God in prayer, we need to approach him with confidence that he hears and he answers. But it's not so much the principle of prayer in general that he's teaching here, but it's actually about the content of the disciples' prayer, what it is that they pray for when they pray. He tells them to have faith in God. We saw last week that faith isn't just believing as hard as you can. 
Faith is putting your trust in the Father in light of what he has done in Jesus, his son. And, uh, and saying to the Father, will I, apart from you being at work in this, these things that I'm praying for in my life, then uh, I have nothing, I'm helpless, I'm completely dependent upon you uh, to, to do the things I'm asking. Prayer is a simple act of faith. The heart that has faith in God is a heart that will pray. To pray is to acknowledge that the Father is sovereign and I'm not. He is God, I am not. Now Jesus had already taught his disciples to pray and uh, the prayer that we sometimes pray here on Sunday mornings, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then there's some other requests that follow that. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, uh, enable us to forgive others, uh, keep us from temptation. But those, those requests that follow come after these three opening petitions and are in light of these opening petitions, that the Father's name be honoured as holy, that his kingdom come and be established and that his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And what that means is when we then ask God for our daily bread and for forgiveness and for help when tempted and ability to forgive others, all those everyday requests that we have, they're all in light of, Father, your name be holy, your kingdom come, your will be done. So they are actually brought into great significance. Me asking for forgiveness is actually part of God's kingdom coming, of his will being done, of him being honoured. Uh, me asking for my daily bread, my needs, are part of his kingdom work as his will is being done in this earth. And we know that Jesus, in this context, he's wanting his disciples to be thinking of this prayer that he taught them. Because, did you notice, he soon finished with very similar words to what he used way back in the Sermon on the Mount when he first taught this prayer. When you stand praying, forgive, so that your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. He's saying, remember this prayer I taught you three years ago that you have been praying over and over again, probably every, every morning and every evening they would pray this prayer that Jesus taught them. He's saying, when you pray this prayer, have confidence. Because this prayer isn't just about the little things and the the trivial things of life. This prayer is a prayer about God's kingdom coming, about everything being turned upside down. These three things aren't just theological ideas. They're not just saying, oh yes, I acknowledge God is holy. I acknowledge that he is a king and I want his will to be done. Uh, These three things had a direct relation to the Jewish hope, that what they were looking forward to, what they had been longing longing for over the centuries. 
They had this hope that God would send the Messiah, the King, that his kingdom would come, that he would establish his kingdom on earth and righteousness and peace would be part of this kingdom and that every creature, every person in this kingdom would do his will by being obedient to his law. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer for God to usher in the fulfilment of his purposes, to usher in his kingdom of righteousness and peace. It's a prayer of great expectation and it's a prayer of great longing to see God's power made manifest in the things of this world, uh, to see his power at work in in the nations, to see his power at work to establish his kingdom and redeem his people. So the establishment of the kingdom, God's will being done, was the central focus of their prayers. And their understanding, it was still limited because they still had to take in the cross. Their understanding was it is all happening. As we are praying this prayer, we are seeing it happening because Jesus is the answer to all of these prayers. So Jesus is likening this fig tree and what has happened to this fig tree to the prayer of faith that asks for the Father's kingdom to come. Notice that he says, whoever says to this mountain, not, not to any mountain in general, but to this mountain. Uh, I think we have, a, do we have a photo there. The next slide should have a... Yes? Uh, this is a, a picture of the Mount of Olives taken from, from Jerusalem. And if you cross that Mount of Olives, on the other side of the Mount of Olives is the town of Bethany. And so as Jesus and his disciples were walking to Jerusalem that morning, they would have walked across the Mount of Olives um, and then into Jerusalem. So this, this fig tree was somewhere on, on the Mount of Olives. And as they stood on that mountain, um, if you were on that mountain and you kept looking that way, you would see in the distance the Dead Sea. Just as we, if we are in a high point around here, we look across and we see the gulf over there. So we can imagine that Jesus, as Jesus is saying to this, uh, saying this, if anyone says to this mountain, this mountain that we're standing on, the Mount of Olives, uh, be torn up, thrown into the sea, we can imagine him pointing across to the Dead Sea uh, that they could see clearly. The Mount of Olives today, uh, it looks like there's a lot of clear land there, but um, it's, that is actually all graves. Uh, the Jews for the last 2,000 or more years uh, have wanted to be buried on the Mount of Olives because their expectation is that when the Messiah comes, he will stand on the Mount of Olives and that's where the resurrection will begin. So they wanted to be there because they wanted to be the first to be raised from the dead when the kingdom came. Another prophecy from Zechariah. 
Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. So the picture there is uh, of enemies coming upon Jerusalem, but the Lord comes down and he intervenes and he tears the mountain in two so that all his people can flee Jerusalem and safely escape this coming destruction. But a little later... Zechariah goes on and says, The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. So the picture here is after, after the mountain has been torn in two and his people have fled to safety and the Lord has defeated all their enemies, then uh, the mountains will be lowered and the valleys will be filled and everything will be a plain, but Jerusalem will remain up on the mountain. Now in an ancient city, uh, the most secure city was a city on a mountain. They had a clear view, 360 degree view, all the way around because you could see your enemies coming from any direction and you could defend yourself. So this picture here is of Jerusalem with all her enemies defeated but in this place of absolute security and peace with no more fear. This is the kind of cataclysmic imagery that Jesus is talking about. If anyone says to this mountain, the Mount of Olives, be thrown into the sea, he's referring to this picture of the mountains being levelled and the seas being filled, uh, the, the coming of God's kingdom when all of our enemies are defeated and we live in peace and security. So rather than being a name it, claim it formula, just think what you want and believe it and you'll get it. He's saying, no, actually your prayers, your prayers are to be all about the coming of God's kingdom. And when you pray for the coming of God's kingdom, you can have an absolute confidence that that is a prayer that will be answered because that is the Father's plan. His Father's plan is to bring his kingdom and for his will to be done. Now, you may still be wondering, well, how does this fit with the fig tree, the withered fig tree, withered from its roots. Well, the fig tree represents Israel. As God's chosen people, Israel, they were called to bear fruit, fruit that would last. The Old Testament prophets often pointed to the fruitfulness of the land as a sign of the spiritual state of the people. The vine, the olive, the fig tree, the crops 
When they were being fruitful and doing well, it was a sign that things were well spiritually with the people and their relationship with God. But whenever there was drought and, and the, the trees and the vines withered, that was God saying to them, you are not right, your heart is not right, you need to turn and repent. Another Old Testament prophecy, from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, there are no figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. So a withered fig tree is a sign of coming judgment upon Jerusalem, upon Israel. So Jesus has come to his people in fulfilment of prophecy. Amid all the shouting and rejoicing of the people who, who thought he'd come as a king to fix things up and drive out the Romans, yet he came to the heart of the city, which was the temple, and he didn't find a house of prayer, he found a den of thieves. So instead of driving the Romans out of Jerusalem, instead he had to drive the traders out of the temple courts. The worship of God had been replaced by the idols of religiosity. And these idols bore fruit not of dependence upon the Father in prayer, but on all the things that were required to maintain this religious system. So they had to sell animals for sacrifice. They had to change currency so that they could pay the temple tax. But in the end, it it was not about prayerful dependence upon God. It was maintaining this system and filling the pockets and the coffers of the priests and the leaders. So the Lord had come and appeared in the temple suddenly, like we heard. And he's come to bring judgment. The judgment that Jesus brings will be like no judgment before it, as it will actually bring about the conclusion of his purposes for this nation. All through the Old Testament, there are times when God seems to be saying, well, this is it for you, Israel. This is the end. No longer my people. Uh, I'm not going to go with you into the promised land, but time and time again, he graciously says, well, actually, I will. He remains true to his covenant purposes for the nation. But the time has come for his specific purposes through the nation of Israel to actually come to an end because all of his purposes are now going to be accomplished through the person of his son and all that he does. This is a solemn time. Israel and her leaders are confronted with their Messiah and he will bring a judgment, a judgment that begins at the household of God. But as he predicted, Jesus is coming, bringing judgments, but he's also coming to enter into judgments. 
to come under judgement. Jesus is coming to be with his people despite their rejection of him and to himself come under the judgement of God that the people deserve. In that parable he told, I think he's not actually saying exactly this is how God is going to treat you. He's saying, well, think of this scenario. Think of a human tenant who owns a vineyard who sends all these people, servants, prophets, to say, where's the fruit? Where is the fruit that you are supposed to be producing from this vineyard? And they're killed. And in the end, uh, uh, the human tenant says, well, okay, here's my last ditch chance. If I'm going to get anything from these people, maybe, maybe my son will have a chance and they will respect him. But of course, they don't even respect the son. And the landlord's response is to come in and to kill the tenants. And to, that's the end, that's it, finished. No hope, no future. The father sends the son to his people, not thinking, oh, maybe they'll respect my son. I'm not sure. I will see how this goes. The father sends the son to his people knowing that he will be killed. In fact, he sends his son in order that he may be killed, that he may bear the judgment that the people deserve. The tenants, the Jewish leaders... They think they're doing their will, but they're actually doing the Father's will. And their rejection of the Son actually means that others will be able to be brought in. So this fig tree, this fig tree that is the nation of Israel, will wither from its roots because its time has come. But it's not the end. It's not the end of God's purposes. Something much greater is going to replace this fig tree. Another tree, Jesus described it as a mustard tree, the smallest of all seeds. He says you put it in the ground and it grows into this great big tree with massive branches and all the birds of the air come and make their nests in its shade. I don't know if you've ever seen a mustard tree It's actually a very small, scrubby shrub. You wouldn't look at it and say, there's a great tree. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God actually surpasses all your expectations. Uh, It replaces the fig tree, it replaces the vine, it replaces uh, what you think, how you think things are going to be worked out, how you, what you think God's kingdom is going to be. You plant a tiny little seed and it grows into this huge tree. This is the picture that Jesus is uh, wanting to convey to his disciples and to us. The others who receive the kingdom, so he says says to the, uh, the landlord says to these tenants, uh, um, or actually Jesus says, the vineyard will be taken away from them and given to others. Who are these others? Well, here we are this morning. Kingdom of God has come to us. We who look back on these events have an even greater reason for confidence to pray. 
than Jesus' disciples did at this time. They were yet to see what we can see as we look back on these events, the cross and the resurrection. They've yet to hear, as we've heard, Jesus cry from the cross. It is finished. It is complete. It is fulfilled. It is done. When we pray, Father, hallowed be your name, we can look to Jesus and see through his humble obedience to death on the cross, he has hallowed his Father's name. He has shown his Father's name to be holy and worthy of honour and glory. When we pray, uh, your kingdom come, well, we can look to Jesus, the King who has come and the kingdom has come in, in him. When we pray, Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we look to Jesus, one who perfectly did the Father's will on earth as it's done in heaven. It's been done in Jesus. If we know all this, how can we not be confident to pray? How can we, we not see that uh, God has, has answered this prayer that he has given us to pray? He has made his name known to be holy. He has done his will on earth as in heaven and his kingdom has come in Jesus.